jacobc.eth, lead of operation for MetaMask at Consensus, here to talk all about the MetaMask wallet. Jacob, welcome to Real Vision. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. So Jacob, we're going to geek out and go deep in the weeds in a few minutes, but just give us a sense for people who are relatively new to this space. What is a wallet? What's its significance? And why do individuals need one? Yeah, so a way to think about a wallet and about Web3 generally is the web itself in its early days, we imagined all of these wild use cases and it was weird and it was fun and it was um, a, a place of a lot of innovation that happened in the early days. And what we saw in the web, what people now call web two, the, the social web or the interactive web is you could build a lot of use cases, but you couldn't really monetize those in the early days, at least not in an ethical way. And so what we saw at the end of the last decade was all of these huge tech platforms developing. Uh, they did not have sustainable business models. And so the users themselves became the product. They, um, you know, the, the user's account was controlled by some third-party entity. Your data, your behavior, surveillance, that became the primary business model. And then we got a few monopolies and they kind of run our lives in a way that people generally are really deeply uncomfortable with. Uh, a wallet and Web3 is a radically different way to, to structure how we use the web. Your wallet controls not only your funds, but your identity or many identities. And you can choose to share what you want with a specific site. You can say to a site, you can see this, you can't see that. You can interact with me in this way. I can send, send and receive uh, funds or join a community or participate in decentralized finance or play a video game or dozens of other use cases in ways where I have self, a self-sovereign ownership over my identity. And MetaMask wants to make a, a more decentralized internet that's more empowering to, to everyone and uh, to, to enable ethical uh, use cases and, and business models to be to be built on top of the web and to, to bring to build a web that's closer to what I imagined when I was younger. Yeah, very well said. Jacob, give us a sense for people who may not already be familiar with what consensus is what you do there and the role that you play in the Ethereum space. Yeah, so consensus is an early Ethereum company. Um, it started as a venture production studio. So during the, the early days after the launch of Ethereum, Consensus was this studio where hundreds of products were created, a lot of them way before their time and, uh, you know, built a lot of crazy weird things. And we uh, ultimately in, in 2020, we separated into two different entities. One's called Consensus Mesh and one is called Consensus Software. MetaMask is a part of Consensus Software, which is a full stack blockchain company or a, a blockchain software company. So we have a, a protocol team that works on things like the Ethereum, uh, Ethereum 2 client. We have an Ethereum 1 client. We, uh, we build core, core infrastructure, optimistic rollups. Uh, on top of that protocol team, there's a managed infrastructure team, which uh, 
is, is called Infura that allows developers to retrieve data from, from the blockchain. MetaMask itself uses Infura to retrieve data. We're the way that end users interface with blockchains, where how you interact with a site, where how you hold your funds, where um, you know a, a key manager, a permission system, uh, a wallet, many of those things. And, and we're a gateway to the decentralized web for, for most people. And then we also provide highly extensible APIs that third parties can build on. Uh, so there's a team also at consensus called Codify. They build DeFi and FinTech products um, on top of MetaMask. And we have a few other products like uh, Truffle, which is a developer tool, and we have an NFT studio. Uh, but we're, we're a much more focused uh, business unit. And uh, the, the consensus mesh uh, business is that old venture production studio uh, that, that continues doing a lot of experiments and, and venture um, venture production work. Jacob, tell us a little bit about the journey in MetaMask. I know uh, there are a lot of people out there who uh, probably own Ethereum, who are excited about it from the things that they've read. They've heard about the use cases, some of the uh, potential things that may be to come with Ethereum, uh, but they still hold their wallet on an exchange, uh, for example, uh, like Coinbase or Kraken. Uh, they don't yet control their own keys. Tell us a little bit about the use case. MetaMask has been around since I believe 2016. Tell us a little bit about the journey to getting to where we are right now and what goals you're trying to fulfill with this software package. So MetaMask was created originally, um, it, its founders, um, Aaron Davis and, and Dan Finlay, were trying to build an early Web3 site or uh, adapt decentralized application. And they needed a way to hold keys. And through a, a turn of events found that, um, you know, ab abstracting them away and in particular holding them in a browser extension, which at the time was our only product. We, we now have a mobile app and a browser extension, but um, abstracting those keys away and allowing um, client-side interactions uh, to be sent and received from a site became a, a really radically different way to structure the web itself. Right. And MetaMask sort of naturally through, you know, through people building what they wanted to use themselves became uh, this this really powerful uh, product for for building decentralized applications and for end users to to access those applications. Um, MetaMask has always prided itself in being the most extensible wallet solution. So we provide the most uh, APIs for doing things uh, that that a, a developer can can build on top of, and we're a relatively unopinionated wallet. We're not a feature wallet that's like built around gaming or that's built around DeFi or something. We we access all of those things and developers can build those use cases with MetaMask better because we're not trying to force our particular vision of of those use cases onto the users. We're instead allowing the the third-party developers to to develop that. So I know you touched on this in your answer, but I want to underline this for people who are relatively new to the space. Uh, for someone who may be watching this video uh, saying, well, look, I, I bought Ethereum. The price has gone up dramatically. What else do I need to do with it? Uh, why do I need a wallet? What is the answer to that question in layman's terms? So when people are new to this space, I, you know, I, I personally encourage people to enter the space by using things right. and trying them and, and finding products that they love to use, uh, whether that be 
um, a, a DeFi protocol and, and lending some of their savings and, and earning interest, or whether that be uh, someone, uh, I, I recently have become a huge fan of a product called Skiff. It's kind of a decentralized Google Docs and the user can hold their the keys to decrypting their documents inside of their wallet. They sign using their wallet um, and you don't need any funds to do that. You can just start interacting with Web3 not paying any money. Uh, just it, It's uh, just a great way to collaborate on documents and productivity. We, I, well, I'd, I'd say that it's really important for people to enter by, by using things rather than just holding like speculative value. Uh, MetaMask also will allow you to hold your funds using the key management solution that works best for you. So for uh, many people, you can use it as a, as a software wallet where you're holding the keys directly inside of the app. And in that uh, use case, the, the keys are encrypted um, in, a, in a secure vault on your device. We also allow the user to connect to a third-party hardware wallet for users who have more um, uh, strong, stronger security needs uh, who are, or who are holding a lot of funds inside of their wallet. And we also have an institutional product that can connect to custodians like um, like Cactus or Bitco and, and things of that type uh, that, that allows the user to, to hold their funds in a compliant way uh, based on their regulatory needs. Yeah. So you mentioned Skiff. Uh, give us a sense of some of the other applications that you use that you're excited about uh, that you interface with using MetaMask. Yeah. So... Personally, I'm a I'm a big fan of DeFi. I'm a big fan of gaming, uh, using blockchains. Um, I like productivity apps with blockchains. Um, some of the the most exciting stuff in the the gaming space has been uh, what I'd call not just the maybe people have heard of play to earn, which is this innovation that the player who participates in the game, those items and assets that they develop through the course of their gameplay should be owned by the player and the player can resell those should they should they want to. Uh, but I, I'm also especially excited about free to earn games. So games that they don't require you to have a wallet. You can later install a wallet through a progressive onboarding journey where after you play the game for a certain period of time, you've accumulated these items. And then when you wanna move those to your wallet, you can do so. And it's really exciting to me to see the the free to earn model because it it helps so many people onboard into the space and, and many of those people are in countries like Nigeria or the Philippines where historically people have been locked out of the financial system and they right. ha they don't have bank accounts they don't have many of these things but they can play a game and they can earn these things and upon earning them they then discover decentralized finance they suddenly have access to to lending and to finance. And I think it, it really uh, changes the economy in really, really powerful and transformative ways for people's lives. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you touched on is that the challenge of explaining just how this space works to people who are new to it. There's so many different functions uh, that uh, Ethereum uh, and Web 3.0 can serve. Give us a sense of what the high-level categories are, the high-level buckets that you think about uh, this space. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned NFTs, you mentioned DeFi. What are the big buckets that you think about this in functionally? 
What's funny, so the original version of MetaMask didn't even display tokens other than ETH. And in the early days, it was a question like, do we need to display different tokens inside of the wallet? And, uh, you know, the things have evolved radically since then. I don't think that um, the MetaMask team ourselves ever, I, I don't think that they, you know, that, that people had a, uh, a view that NFTs would be a thing, for example, right? Or uh, or DeFi. Those things happened because we or from from our side, we provided highly extensible APIs and people built use cases that they wouldn't otherwise be able to build. I should say for people who are relatively new to the space, uh, APIs are application programming interfaces. This is the interface right. that uh, software talks to other software packages with. It's a mechanism uh, to communicate across different applications. Thank, thank you, Ash. I should have said that. Uh, in terms of the use cases today, I don't believe that those will be the same use cases that we'll have in even six months or a year and definitely not in five years. But, but I'll say the main categories that we have today are decentralized finance. So this is people using some sort of decentralized financial services, whether that's uh, depositing some of their savings to provide liquidity in a trading platform like a decentralized exchange or into to a, a vault where they're lending to, uh, to other individuals or to a protocol. Uh, DAOs and communities is the second one. So that's... Uh, a DAO is, it stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. It's basically a community that's powered by a blockchain or that's, that's powered by a smart contract. It allows its members to vote on things, to spend funds uh, as a community. Uh, some of those are investment funds. Some of them are um, activist groups. Uh, there, there's a SeaWorld DAO that's trying to to buy uh, SeaWorld and, and free the orcas. Uh, yeah, there's uh, quite a diversity of, of um, different types of DAOs. Uh, some of them are grants DAOs. So they, they have some sort of a grant budget. They're making grants to, uh, to open source uh, developers or to, uh, to, to individuals who are doing social good. Uh, a third category is blockchain gaming. So that includes play to earn games, free to play or free to earn games um, where the, the games are powered by NFTs, which is a, a non-fungible token. It means that the assets that are inside of the game are held in the user's wallet. They can send and receive them. The assets are often interoperable between different games. So uh, two competing game developers might implement the same asset inside of their games. So one game that attracts a lot of players, another game developer from a completely different company can implement the tokens from their competitor's game inside of their game and build a, a common shared economy and ecosystem right. between the two games. And uh, this is uh, the original meaning behind Metaverse before it sort of became... Uh, a weird Facebook VR thing, but um, uh, we we also see art and collectible NFTs. So whether that's artists or people making uh, profile picture products, th things of that type, uh, we also see a lot of just payments and commerce and people sending and receiving funds 
Um, th those are the largest categories for us today. Yeah, I think that's so helpful as people struggle to get their heads around what this new ecosystem looks like, because these changes are so fundamental and so powerful uh, in terms of the way uh, that the, the the world functions in terms of commerce, uh, finance, uh, and, and even ownership of different assets. You know, I've, I've mentioned on the show before that it's easy to chuckle uh, at, for example, Constitution Dow. Obviously, they were not successful uh, at purchasing a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and it's easy for people, particularly people over 30, uh, to chuckle about uh, gaming applications. But this really is something that is incredibly exciting. And if you talk to younger people who understand this stuff intuitively, natively, it's really just an incredibly powerful mental shift that I think we're all just beginning to understand the power and implications of. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, for, for my generation, uh, I'm in my thirties. I, uh, I really felt for a long time, like the free to play, uh, gaming models. So, you know, the mobile games that we saw in the last decade, they really became increasingly exploitative and left players feeling like they have to put hundreds of dollars into something. Uh, in order to participate in a system. And uh, many of these games were hyper addictive in, in various different ways. And they lacked the depth of content and quality, uh, largely because they're, the business model of like a, a one-time game uh, became increasingly expensive and, and difficult for game developers. And part of what makes me really excited and optimistic about the future of, of play to earn and, and free to earn is that it is a sustainable business model where developers can continue to expand the universes that they create, yeah. that it's an economy that includes the, the players themselves and uh, those players have ownership. And in many times they get governance tokens uh, from the games by playing the games and can participate in the, the democratic governance of the games that they, that they're a part of. I, it's just so radically different than anything that we had before. And I, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, we won't name any names here, but there are definitely games, some involving candy and other involving birds, where you just feel uh, like the feeling of when you were in an arcade uh, as a kid, maybe dropping quarters into a machine, except instead of dropping in quarters, you're dropping in tens and twenties on a daily basis. Obviously, it's been a very lucrative model for the people who have built those games, uh, but is it really sustainable? Yeah, I I think there's a an opportunity to... Um, to, to have things where people want to be highly engaged and they have a stake in the game, but also are, are benefiting from those same dynamics as, as a community and right. have, have a say in the direction in which that, that goes. Well, yeah, that really is a powerful point. Obviously, we live in a capitalist society. It's great when companies make money, uh, but it does it really, I guess the question, does it actually add value back to the community, as you suggest? And this this paradigm shift between things that are owned by the community uh, rather than owned by a, sort of a third uh, corporate entity, indep independent corporate entity, uh, it really is a tremendous change in the way that we think about these ecosystems. Absolutely.
So let's talk a little bit about MetaMask uh, proper. Uh, for people who aren't as involved in the space uh, as you are, obviously, uh, they may not understand the size of MetaMask. I believe MetaMask is the number one Ethereum wallet in the world today. Give us a sense of some of the metrics that you guys keep uh, in terms of the size and scope of that community. Yeah, so we have uh, our, the main growth metric that we follow is monthly active users. And for us, a monthly active user is a unique wallet. It's not the individual accounts within the wallet. So some people who maybe use a lot of blockchain apps, you can see um, on, on a blockchain, the number of Ethereum accounts, for example, that interact with a dApp. And in some cases, one user has multiple accounts inside of their wallet. But for us, we, we look at unique wallets. So a monthly active user is a unique wallet. We have um, over significantly over 21 million um, monthly active users and have been growing in the range of 20 to 40% per month um, on, on average. So we, we've seen per some per month. Yeah. Um, so we, we've seen some, some pretty, pretty extraordinary growth. Um, in the last two years in, in particular. And that growth has often been in highly diverse use cases. Hmm. So you'll find in one quarter, there's this huge surge of art and um, collectible NFTs. And then we'll see a huge growth of, of DAOs and communities and then DeFi and then uh, gaming. And, and then many times these waves sort of compound upon each other and People who will enter for one use case, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a young artist starts making an income through selling art, and then they discover DeFi. Um, it it's the same kind of a feedback loop that we see with the internet itself. Mm -hmm. Like someone onboards to use something that they like, but they discover so much more value, and then because the value of the internet itself grows. Uh, more people join the web, and then the more people who join the web, the more value there is in the system overall. Yeah. In terms of other metrics that we follow, so uh, we've we've put a lot into uh, following use cases and and tracking the use cases of them. We tag DApps that people use and and associate them with different use cases. So we've been measuring a, a lot of the growth of in in the most recent. Uh, the last few months, like the, the largest growth has been around the, the gaming use cases uh, with uh, DeFi being uh, maybe the, the second largest use case. Let's talk a little bit about privacy. Uh, I know you've said elsewhere uh, this, and this is kind of gets to the distinctions that we were talking about earlier uh, between community owned uh, and corporate entities. This idea uh, that uh, that you've said Google and uh, and Facebook treat their users like products Give us a sense of what that means uh, and how this space, in your view, can be different. I think it's possible to have an internet that is owned by the people who participate in the products and to have business models that are based on regular commerce. You know, I pay you to do something or I, you know, we, we form a community and we hire people as a, as a community uh, through a DAO structure. Uh, those are really, really different than business models, which are um, 
which are based on basically trying to, the, the incentives of web two businesses are around engagement. You need people to spend the most time possible in an app. So you make your app highly addictive and then you take all of the data that results from the people spending time in their app, in your app and you monetize it. You sell their, their private information to third parties. And I, I think that it's that not only is that business model wrong, I also think that that business model is saturated. I don't think that it, that it will grow that much more. And I think many of those businesses are in decline and are, are having a great deal of difficulty growing. Facebook's rebranding uh, being, being a symptom of that. Mm. And here we have on, on the other hand, the, the possibility to make these very different business models. And so for MetaMask, for us, um, how we make money, uh, are the way we've made the most is we give people access to the entire decentralized web. We're a completely permissionless product. You can use any decentralized application together with MetaMask, but we also aggregate um, uh, we, we allow the user to, to search different decentralized exchanges, uh, and to, to find the best quotes, uh, if they need to swap from one token to another token and, uh, they don't have to use our product to do that. They can use a decentralized exchange directly if they want to, but generally we find that we save people more money than had they gone to a single decentralized exchange directly or even to a single decentralized exchange aggregator because each of those um, each of those products is a different way of of splitting a person's token swap across different decentralized exchanges so we we abstract all that away from the the customer we make it super simple for the customer to find the token that they need and to to swap uh, to that token and we charge a, a small fee for that uh, but it's it's a totally consensual business model, and it's one that you know we we think enables the whole decentralized web as opposed to us seeking to be some sort of rent seeking entity or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You talked earlier uh, about this notion of extensibility, flexibility of the MetaMask wallet. You guys, in some ways, have a really key challenge out there, which is to build this extensibility and flexibility while still making uh, it easy to use. So you've got all these user experience, user interface issues. I've joked that my mom doesn't have a MetaMask wallet yet. What are we going to do to get her one? Uh, yeah, it's it's really interesting that the, the speed of growth has been so parabolic in many ways because people can have a sense of ownership in this new economy. The, the growth... Uh, the growth speed is outstripping the user experience right. that that the ecosystem is ready to provide. And I think that we are increasingly making these products more accessible and making them uh, safer and uh, surfacing uh, different security risks to users. And uh, that's an extremely important thing. I do, um, you know, I, I think the most important thing that, that we're doing and that we constantly do is is work to to keep people safe, uh, work to um, uh, to to give the the user more control over what they're doing, and to to allow them to make strong decisions with what they want to do with their assets. 
Is there a tension there that you find between building in the highest level of security uh, on the one hand and on the other, user experience, simplicity, ease of use? There's no doubt. So some of our competition have opted for things which we would not do and don't find ethical. So they can surface a lot of data uh, by using certain third-party APIs and leaking the customer's account information to a bunch of third parties. We just wouldn't do those kinds of things. And so uh, there, there are definitely UX trade-offs, but for us, right. we want to be the most decentralized wallet. We want to be the most secure wallet and we want to be the wallet that is the most extensible. And could you, uh, could you define some of those terms? What does it mean to be the most decentralized wallet and the most extensible wallet? Yeah, so lots of wallets can surface a lot of information about the assets that you have in them by just showing you all kinds of uh, any, any data that you can find on a blockchain, for example, uh, or by connecting to a third party API and retrieving that data. And usually when they do that, they are either showing the user scams or dangerous things that are not real tokens. So like a, a token pretending to be another token, uh, or uh, they're, con they're by default just connecting to dozens of networks and using third-party in uh, what are called third-party endpoints to retrieve the data from those blockchains. And for all of those endpoints that they're connecting to, they're bleeding the customer's account list to those endpoints. And because blockchains are transparent, they're then bleeding uh, account balances. They're subjecting their customers to risks where their customers could be targeted in various different ways. They, um, and, and also they're relying on centralized services to provide this data to the customers in ways that uh, is not so censorship resistant or not so, uh, what we say, decentralized. Right. For, for us, we want to be the most decentralized wallet and to provide great UX in a, in a decentralized context. Yeah. So you mentioned this idea of scams. Um, let's just jump in and talk about it. Uh, obviously, one of the things that's been happening uh, in the space is there's a tremendous amount uh, of, of demand right now uh, for a native token to drop. Uh, from MetaMask. Uh, Joe Lubin, the CEO uh, at Consensus, uh, recently, I think it was back in November, uh, posted uh, when MetaMask, stay tuned, when mask, like buck mask, like the token drop, stay tuned. Uh, and recently, we had a fake MetaMask token drop. Tell us a little bit about how you think about that and what you're doing to combat scams like the fake token. Yeah, so we have a, we have a project called ETH Phishing Detect. Uh, which we've actually been maintaining for years. That product, if you have the MetaMask browser extension installed or you're using the browser on MetaMask mobile and you navigate to a scam, we will intercept that, um, that URL and warn you that you're browsing to a scam. That's the, the most basic thing that we do in that regard. We're also working with... Uh, a security partner called Fishfort, which is a company that specializes in the takedown of scams. And they're, they're a Web3 native company. They're really the cutting edge of, of anti-phishing software for the decentralized web. I strongly recommend projects, you know, if, if there are developers watching this, like um, 
if you're being targeted by fishers, you should you should totally work with uh, Fishport. But uh, so so we do those things. Uh, we're also working to get more people on Harbor wallets. Uh, that's a a great way to deter people against um, some forms of scams like malware and things like that. Where for people who don't maybe, know, tell us a little bit about what hardware wallets are, what they do, and how they integrate with MetaMask. Yeah, so you can connect a. We have four different hardware wallets that are officially supported today. Those include um, Ledger, which is the most common hardware wallet, the Grid Plus Lattice, which is a uh, 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 an Ethereum native hardware wallet. Uh, it has a full-size screen that lets you read the details of all of your transactions. And it also lets you encrypt your secret recovery phrase on a credit card. Uh, so even if the card where your secret recovery phrase is held um, is stolen, as long as someone doesn't have the pin, your funds are still not compromised. Uh, so we also support um, uh, another hardware wallet called the Keystone, which uh, works through a QR code uh, mechanism where you scan uh, what's on your screen and then it your webcam scans what's on its screen. Um, and, and also Trazer, which is a, another common hardware wallet. But basically what all of these do is they take your, your private keys and they move them off of your device. So even if someone has a key logger on your computer and they're trying to monitor to steal your secret recovery phrase, or they're trying to get your password so that they can steal the vault off of your computer. A hardware wallet ensures that that can't happen. And hardware wallets can also help you know that the transaction you're approving really is the transaction you're approving. Right. So in, in some attacks, a hacker might replace the MetaMask software with a, a fake piece of software that looks like MetaMask. And they show the user a transaction to approve. That's not the actual transaction that they're approving. Uh, a hardware wallet, by moving the transaction off of the device to where you're approving on a physical device off of your computer, protects you against those type of uh, those types of scams. For people who are struggling to get their heads around the big picture here about what we're really talking about, let me just give you the way that I think about it. Maybe you can help me refine it. When I think about this space, when I think about Ethereum, when I think about Web 3.0. I think about this being the decentralization of trust, identity, and value, effectively removing intermediaries uh, like financial services companies, like banks, and sort of the power and the glory of that is that there are no third-party intermediaries. And the risk and the challenge also is there are no intermediaries. So the reason that security is of such a prominent focus in all of these conversations uh, that we've been having uh, is this, the idea that once a token is removed, once an Ethereum uh, token is removed or Bitcoin is removed, it's gone. It's really out there uh, in space. There's no 1-800 number to call to get it back. That's the challenge that we're talking about here. And it's really a significant and material one. How do you think about that? How do you think about those balances, those trade-offs, and the future of where we're headed in this space? It's true. It's, it's more important than ever for people to manage their security and to have basic understandings of the products that they're using. Uh, it's, it's our responsibility as MetaMask to surface as much information as possible and to make it as accessible as possible for the users so that they can make the security decisions that they wish to make themselves. And that, that's our outlook and, and our goal is, is to make all of this accessible to people. Uh, we, we, we actually say our, our mission statement is to democratize access to the decentralized web.
so to, to make the decentralized web available to everyone. Um, when it comes to when it comes to Web three, it is true that it um, that a scammer there there isn't a third party that can reverse a scam for you or something like that. You might be able to contact an ex, uh, a cryptocurrency exchange where a scammer transfers your funds and get them recovered, but it's it's difficult. It's extremely difficult. And uh, for for us, you know, I I I do believe that the industry as a whole will increasingly harden um, security, that there will be new types of key management solutions right. um, and th things like multi-sigs where, um, you know, the user is approving the transaction across uh, multiple devices or multiple parties even need to approve a transaction. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the future of multi-sigs and I think that they, um, they're not the same as how people think about two-factor authentication in um, the old centralized web, but, uh, they do accomplish the same thing and provide a, a really similar user experience. Yeah. You know, I would probably just add to that. We are still in the incredibly early days of this space. Uh, people, you know, often use this metaphor of where are we in terms of the internet timeline? Are we in 1985? Uh, are we in 1995? I think it's just extremely, extremely early. And we're building up uh, all of these different abstraction layers, hardware, software, uh, multi-sig uh, architectures for uh, transfer of value, transfer of funds. This is something that's still incredibly, incredibly early. That's sort of what makes it exciting. That's what makes it risky. And that's why we're having conversations like these right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I liken the stage that we're at is very similar to videos from the 90s where a nerd was explaining uh, TCP IP to people. And, you know, at the time it was really important to understand TCP IP to use the internet. And now I think almost nobody who uses the internet knows what TCP IP is. <laughs> uh, I, we will increasingly abstract these, um, these technical pieces away uh, while also surfacing key information and allowing people to make decisions that they want to make themselves. Yeah. Jacob, a great conversation, a true deep dive into the mechanics and the philosophy of Web3 and where we are right now. Final thoughts as we come to a close of this conversation. You know, I, I think w for people who are new to this ecosystem, I would really, I, I know I mentioned this before, but I would really encourage people to spend some time trying things. And don't just try things that are the use case you know. If you've maybe been using uh, MetaMask before, uh, go and try a great diversity of things and have fun and go down the rabbit hole and uh, experience all of the weirdness that the internet has to offer. Uh, it, it's it's extraordinary. And, um, you know, I, I am very excited about that future. Jacob, thanks for joining us. And thank you for watching on this dive down the rabbit hole. Thank you, Ash. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and 
there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.